Hello and welcome to End Credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm your host, Adam A. Donaldson. Joining me in a bit will be Tim Phillips, and Tim will join us for this week's review, which is The Power. Well, I won't say the name yet, because there's a portion of the show where I do make a point of saying the name, but uh, the, the name of the film in case you are unawares, is related to a Bible verse, and you don't necessarily understand that until you get to the very end of said film, when the title and the Bible verse that it is taken from is put in context. So it's a complicated one, and uh, that's why we tune in to end credits for the complicated movies that we all enjoy, I guess. End Credits is a local movie show for local movie fans. We are here every Wednesday at 3pm to talk the latest in pop culture and review the newest movies, which this week will be the new psychological drama western, The Power of the Dog, which you can now stream on Netflix. That will be in the back half of the show for the first half. Uh, Since we're almost at the end of the year, we're going to talk about some of the biggest pop culture and movie news stories of the year and it was a pretty busy year in terms of some of these stories like some of these were like major stories uh that really kind of shook up the industry and others are kind of like you know just another year (laughs) of business stuff and people behaving badly and people getting canceled so well it's uh it's quite the list, so let's let's get into that. At number ten, uh I have theaters reopening, so I mean it took a bit longer here in Ontario. They didn't open until about mid July, uh, as compared to other places in Canada that opened a bit sooner. Uh the United States, which opened started opening theaters in the spring, late spring, early summer period. But I mean it all seems kind of even though we have the Omicron going about, everything seems kind of back to normal now. Both Galaxy Cinemas in Guelph are open. The bookshelf is open, showing movies. Uh, and KW, all those major theater chains are open, plus the two Princess locations, plus the Apollo Cinema in downtown Kitchener. So all's well that ends well. Or does it? I mean, who knows what might happen with this Omicron stuff, but uh, stay tuned. At number nine... I have, (laughs) I don't mean to laugh, I'm glad Ryan Johnson is enjoying success, but like $400 million for two Knives Out sequels from Netflix, which is a lot of money considering how um, economical, shall we say, the first Knives Out movies was. Um, But yeah, uh, Netflix paid $400 million to get uh, the exclusive streaming rights to the Knives Out sequels. Uh, they've already started casting for the second one. There's no official name for it yet, but obviously Daniel Craig will be back as uh, Benoit Blanc. Um, but he'll be joined by an entirely new cast of people, and they have, inc- so far, uh, included Dave Bautista, Edward Norton, Ethan Hawke, Catherine Hahn, Leslie Odom Jr., and Kate Hudson. So, I mean, that's another murderer's row. I mean, they had a really great cast in Knives Out one with Jamie Lee Curtis, Don Johnson, Michael Shannon, uh, Ana de Armas, uh, Frank Oz, even Frank Oz in a small role as the lawyer. So it was, um, 
it, it, it will be interesting because while Daniel Craig was the kind of detective in Knives Out, uh, the main character was Ana de Armas. So I'm I'm wondering if that structure will hold up where it's like ostensibly a bon, uh, Benoit Blanc mystery, but it's somebody else's story. At number eight, I have the controversy around the Golden Globes. Um, this happened sort of earlier this year. It, it, there was this um, kind of wave of concern that there were no black members of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. They responded and said, oh, yes, no, we're absolutely going to you know, work on our diversity issues. And that was not to the satisfaction of a lot of people. The Golden Globes did was held despite the pandemic um, in March, I think, if I remember correctly. It was kind of by coastals. There were some people in L.A., some people in New York. Um, but this was definitely sort of a, a pendulum doom hanging over the head of the Golden Globes, these issues with diversity. Of course, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, too, has always been this very shadowy group um, sort of keep to themselves, like, who who's a, who is the Hollywood Foreign Press Association? How does one become a part of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association? And indeed, you know, there's also been allegations of corruption, like buying them off. There's allegations that they're really just in it to meet celebrities, which is why you get, like, weird kind of random nominations, like uh, <laughs> Angelina Jolie getting nominated for The Tourist. I think that was 2013. It was a movie nobody saw. But it got nominated for a Golden Globe because uh, if you're on the Golden Globes, you want to hang out with Angelina Jolie because why not? So the consequence of this is that the Golden Globes will not be airing uh, next month on broadcast TV. NBC has said it won't. I'm pretty sure CTV will not be as well. Um, it's going to be live streamed instead. They actually announced the Golden Globe nominations this week, but I mean, it, it seems that the Globes themselves are going to be kind of a non-entity this year. We'll have to wait and see what happens. At number seven, I have M Amazon buys MGM. Uh, so Amazon... MGM has always sort of been this, like at least for the last 20, 30 years, has been like this struggling studio. Even though they have one of the most um, expensive, or one of the most um, richest IPs, in current modern movie filmmaking in the form of James Bond. It's like this company that's always kind of on the brink of collapsing, but now they have Amazon behind it, which does a couple of things. Number one, it gives financial stability to MGM. Uh, number two, and I think it's more to the Amazon's advantage than anything else, but Amazon gets to wear this facade of old Hollywood. Uh, MGM is one of the oldest studios. Um, definitely you know, the, the names behind it were old Hollywood royalty. And so now they get to wear that facade because, you know, for streamers like Amazon, it's a bit hard to play in the uh, mainstream Hollywood field. So things like con getting awards consideration and like Netflix has always felt that they could just bust through the door, like the Kool-Aid man and make everyone sort of bend to their will. But Amazon has always been willing to sort of play the, the long game and try and, you know, kind of weasel their their way in by playing the Hollywood game, and this is sort of like the ultimate extension of that. And number six, I have Scarlet Sue's Disney, Scarlett Johansson sued Disney over the release of Black Widow, which came at just sort of like the <laughs> that borderline period between things kind of fully opening and um, 
things still kind of being in lockdown. Black Widow was released in theaters, but it was also released uh, on Disney Plus for an extra fee at the exact same time. And Scarlett Johansson sued Disney on the basis that uh, this move uh, undercut her royalties and how much money she could have made on the back end of Black Widow. Interesting to note, on a couple of uh, levels, number one, Black Widow's the only Marvel movie that they did that with. Uh, subsequently, Shang-Chi and The Eternals were both released in theaters exclusively. Uh, the second thing worth noting is that the suit has kind of wrapped up. Uh, it has been resolved. There was some sort of settlement reached, and now apparently Scarlett Johansson is working on a new Marvel project, independent of Black Widow. So, I mean, all's well that ends well, and, you know, let sleeping dogs lie and all that. And number five, I have this year's cancellations. Not like TV show cancellations, I mean people cancellations. I mean, starting with Army Hammer, who um, a number of women reportedly, or a number of women reported that he had allegedly gotten like really dark and psychologically disturbed with them, like threatening cannibalism, uh, <laughs> threatening to eat them essentially. Brutal, brutal stuff. And he spent most of the year in rehab after losing like a a ton of parts. Uh, he just came out of rehab apparently last weekend, right in the midst of another assault allegation. So, uh, Army Hammer out, uh, also out Marilyn Manson. Um, there's long been some simmering allegations about his treatment of women. And there's just like this awful, awful, I want to say it was in Rolling Stone. I think it was in Rolling Stone. This awful in-depth piece about what he has allegedly done to the various women he's been in relationships with. It's just awful, awful stuff. Uh, on the flip side, you have Cosby getting out of jail essentially on a technicality, but uh, so that's one instance where things didn't go quite the right way. And then, of course, like maybe the biggest one of all is Joss Whedon, who is already fighting allegations about mistreating actors on the set of the Justice League reshoots. Earlier this year, Chris McCarpenter, who worked on Buffy and Angel with Whedon, essentially said that he berated, abused, and then fired her for getting pregnant while shooting uh, Angel uh, back in the early part of the century. Uh, a lot of actors on Buffy and Angel came to Chris McCarpenter's defense, and that was part of the sort of interesting drama of, of, of all of this, even Sarah Michelle Geller and Michelle Trachtenberg <laughs> said something like, I think it was maybe the most damaging at all that when she was shooting Buffy, um, her people didn't let her be alone in a room with Joss Whedon. And Michelle Trachtenberg was like, I want to say 13, 14 at the time. So, I mean, that is damning. Um, <laughs> that this guy who's long been embraced as like a feminist and a feminist filmmaker created one of the most feminist TV shows of the last like 30 years that, you know, the, the parents of female actors wouldn't let them be alone with their underage child. It's just incredible how, I mean, he was already falling, but he fell he, like somehow he managed to mind, managed to find more room under the basement. In 2021, Joss Whedon did. 
but there was good news. Uh, number four, we have uh, Britney Spears. She uh, was released from her conservator- conservatorship. This was covered, like, there was at least three different Britney Spears docs about everything that was going on with her, and, and this is this seemed to be a situation where she was kind of suffering in silence uh, until this year. Uh, it, it's remarkable that, you know, if you watch any of the docs, you kind of quickly see how parasitic people around Britney Spears were basically using this conservatorship as a cash cow. And fortunately, like, that has come out like, the conservatorship, like, laws have been sort of exposed, and um, hopefully there are better days ahead for Britney Spears. And number three, I have the firing of anti-vaccination uh, or vaccine-hesitant people. I mean, famously, there's Gina Carano, who was fired from The Mandalorian for basically discussing vaccine conspiracy theories online. She has since recovered. She's working on a movie with Ben Shapiro. And uh, she's also currently working on a movie with Robert Davi about Hunter Biden. Um, so, hey, good good, good luck with these projects, uh, Gina Carano. Uh, there's what's going on with Letitia Wright on Black Panther. She's been dinged with like vaccine-hesitant social media posts. Uh, a lot of people think her days at Mar- at Marvel Disney are numbered. Uh, two people like quit General Hospital or were fired because they refused to get the vaccine. Um, in prime time, there's an actor named Rachma Dumbar who is on the TV show Nine One One who had to leave the show because he refused to get vaccinated. So, I mean, you want to talk about liberal Hollywood? Um. Uh, Maybe not. Maybe a little too liberal in some cases. So at number two, I have the IATC strike, which uh, would have been the biggest labor disruption in Hollywood uh, for I think since World War Two or before World War Two. So that would have been incredible. A lot of it is like extension of a lot of what's going on in labor these days. So people complaining about pay, people complaining, uh, talking about being overworked, uh, not getting enough benefits. Uh, being t- having to be too connected to the job, so all of this stuff played into the IATSE's threat to strike. It was settled, sort of just in the nick, just before the wire. But it also plays into the number one story there, which was this incident on the set of Rust, this western that was shooting in New Mexico, where uh, a prop gun fired a real bullet, killing the director of photography, injuring the director. Um, it seemed that safety was lax on this set, and indeed there were complaints from people working on the set and indeed some labor disruptions as people are apparently quitting because there was such a big concern about safety on set it is probably the worst on set accident uh since brandon lee was killed on the set of the crow in 1993 and still ongoing still legal measures um i mean everybody has a lawyer alec baldwin recently did an interview um and you know other people involved in the matter sort of shot back at his interpretation of events it's just a mess and it's going to kind of keep getting messier as all of this legis- uh litigation sort of forks itself out there are civil suits people suing the producers people suing Alec Baldwin countersuits um it it just all seems to come back to that like no one really had a watchful eye on safety on this set and if you're going to have guns around uh, that's like kind of doubly bad because you can get you can get hurt on a set 
Um, if someone doesn't, you know, secure a sandbag right, you know, a sandbag falling 20 feet on top of your head doesn't feel great. So, I mean, how are there real, real bullets on a set, and how do you, uh, an AD, without the knowledge of the lead armor, give a gun to an actor with a real bullet into it and not tell him, or perhaps not even know that there's a real bullet in the prop gun? These are the questions that will have to get answered um, at some point along the way. So there'll, this will be an ongoing story in 2022? Yes, 2022. We are going into 2022. And before we go into the review of the week, uh, just a, a bit of a programming note. Next week we are going to play our Christmas episode, music from your favorite holiday movies. That is going to be on the 22nd. On the 29th, we will have our annual year-end show, the top five. The whole gang will be here. And then we'll be, uh, we will be back with new episodes in the new year, starting on January the 5th, 2022. So just keep your eye out for that in the weeks to come. Coming up next, keep your eye out for The Power of the Dog. We're going to review that. We're going to get Tim on the phone or on the Zoom, however you like it. Anyway. Uh, that is coming up next. You are listening to End Credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. Sure, he's not ready. Go on, let him out. It's just a man, Peter. Only another man. <laughs> uh, a man was made by patience and the odds against him. For what kind of man would I be if I did not help my mother? not save her. And that was a clip from The Power of the Dog. It's the new film from writer and director Jane Campion, and it stars Benedict Cumberbatch, Kirsten Dunst, Jesse Plemons, Cody Smith-McPhee, Thomason McKenzie, and Francis Conroy. I am now being joined by the one and only Tim Phillips. Tim, how are you today? Doing well, Adam. Enjoying it. Uh, unseasonably warm today. <laughs> Probably when this airs, it'll be snowing. So, but yeah, really enjoying today. How are you doing, Adam? Uh, yeah, it's, it's that time of year, I guess. Uh, I went to bed last night. There was snow on the ground. Woke up this morning. There was no snow. It was all gone. And, uh, well, that's getting ready for the Christmas season. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's getting ready for Christmas. Make sure everything's nice and green for Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, hopefully the snow will come back. 
but uh you know it's i don't control the weather so that's just uh um a a suggestion i thought you did no that's not me that's somebody else (sighs) all right let's talk about the movie Uh, okay (laughs) (laughs) rough segue but i will take it Um, that's good i mean it's it's okay it's rough because this movie was kind of rough the power of the dog which uh is the new jane campion movie the first movie she's made in 12 years and uh although she's done some tv stuff in the last decade but it's her first capital m movie Mm -hmm. uh so tim are you a jane campion fan and is that why the power of the dog called to you (laughs) it howled it howled to me in the night that's right (laughs) it howled through the screen through netflix um definitely i uh yeah well jane campion i'm you know familiar with some of her work like the piano but i'm not like a huge fan Mm. Um, but i was aware of this film because it was getting a lot of really really positive reviews um and it's on Netflix, easy to find. Mm-hmm. And it also has Jesse Plemons in it, who I find seems to be attached to really great projects, mm-hmm. like over his career. Some of my favorite, I'm not a big binge watcher of TV, TV, but two of my favorites were Friday Night Lights and Breaking Bad. And I thought he was excellent in both of those. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about ending things. I thought was a really cool sort of mind trip of a movie that he had the lead in. So I was interested because he was attached to it. The buzz, the movie was getting. Yeah. And Jane Campion too. Once I heard she hadn't made a movie since 2009, mm-hmm. I was interested, interested to see what she did, especially, mm-hmm. you know, nowadays during COVID um, based out of New Zealand, just seeing, seeing how she put together an American Western in New Zealand. I was interested <laughs> in that. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, it, it is interesting that some of the best American Westerns have sort of come out of Australia and New Zealand, um, like the proposition I'm thinking about, too. Uh, it seems that uh, you, you really want to catch that American Western flavor. Go to <laughs> go to uh, the Australian continent area. Uh, yeah, I, I had heard about it about the power of the dog, too. It's getting a lot of buzz. Uh, I think it was at Venice and TIFF. It was one of those sort of um, twofers earlier in the fall. So I was getting a lot of buzz out of that. I am not terribly familiar with Jane Campion's oeuvre, um, but I have been listening to the... They've been doing a series of sort of look-back reviews on film spotting about her her um, filmography, which I have listened to. And I've enjoyed. And and so, yeah, I, I was definitely looking forward to The Power of the Dog. Um, it is... Uh, it is not what you expect. And certainly if you read the log line of this movie, and I should look it up because it, it tells you practically nothing. And when it's, when you actually watch the movie, it makes even less sense. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it, it is anchored by, I was going to say three performances, but you could throw in a fourth performance. It, it's like this really fascinating character study. Um, but it's also set against this the, the, this magnificent backdrop of New Zealand posing as Montana, and I I don't I've never been to either New Zealand or Montana, but from what I understand, there isn't probably too much of a geographical difference between the two. However, 
the fact that you're subbing New Zealand for Montana gives it a kind of something's a little off. Yeah. It's it's a little eerie. And I and think you have that, Benedict Cumberbatch too in the lead, right? Like yeah, not, a British guy playing yeah. a, a a British guy playing an American in a Western filmed in New Zealand. So I mean everything's like <laughs> every, everything's got like 10 different layers of subterfuge. And so it, it, everything about it just seems a little bit off and it, the the Johnny Greenwood score too, which is mm-hmm. like Johnny Greenwood um the guitar I think he's the guitarist of Radiohead, the guitarist and yeah. keyboardist of Radiohead. So very English band, but he's doing like this like incredible like American West banjo score for yeah. uh for the movie which also is kind of eerie and, and sets you on edge so the entire movie it's like two hours and six minutes of being on edge because of just just how the movie looks and how it sounds and that gets nothing into um the performances which um benedict Cumberbatch especially because his character is thoroughly loathsome and <laughs> <laughs> and so by the time you actually like get start trying to get into um Phil's head, which is the Benedict Cumberbatch character, you're you're kind of already on on the brink of bailing on this movie, but because it's so fascinating, you're you're just captivated by everything that's happening on screen, too. Yeah, and I would say this movie, first time I watched it, I was captivated, but for much of it. Um, but then when it came to a conclusion, I actually found myself not liking it that much. Mm. I was like, I don't really, I don't really like this. I, I just felt like, okay, maybe some of the characters say maybe sort of obvious, you know, like, you know, sort of like, okay, he's, you know, a latent homosexual who's, um, who's mentor Bronco, Bronco Henry. Henry, Bronco Henry. And he mentions <laughs> them all the time. And yep. at first, and then when it came to a conclusion, I was like, and I got the twist ending, which mm-hmm. I won't give away. And, but I sort of like, I don't know, for some reason I didn't like it, at, but then it stuck with me for a couple of days. Mm. And that's usually a signal to me that, you know, there's something more there. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I didn't want to just dismiss it. So I, I did watch it again and I appreciated it more the second time. Because um, mm-hmm. you see a lot of the foreshadowing, mm-hmm. you know, that all leads up. Because I think it's just a, it's a terrific ending. And and it's great, just the subtlety of it. And it made me think, you know, when I thought about it after watching it the first time and then watching it the second time, that it was came to me, came across to me like it's a real genre movie, but I wasn't thinking like Western. I was thinking it's, it's like the subtlest of horror movies, really. Um, when you start thinking of these characters, um, especially thought the character that plays Peter Gordon, mm. played by Cody Smith McPhee. Mm-hmm who's, you know, this, you know, awkward gay sort of effeminate mm. guy who's here in the West, who's, you know, bullied by Phil Burbank, played by Benedict Cumberbatch. Mm. Um, but he always sort of keeps an even keel. Mm-hmm. And it, it really sort of interesting character study there. And it just made me think this, you know, this is really sort of like, to me, like a subtle horror movie that, that would make Alfred Hitchcock smile, you know? And yeah. I felt like Jane Campion was probably inspired by somebody like Hitchcock to make this. And it made me think, cause there's a really great movie by Alfred Hitchcock shadow of a doubt. 
Mm-hmm. And I watched it like last year. <laughs> I was doing other things. It was over the holidays. Um, so we're like <laughs> making food and I have the sound off, but I'm watching it mm-hmm. with the sound off. And I'm like, I can understand everything that's happening in this movie and just like how evil some of these characters are and, you know, how it's all playing out without any sound. Mm-hmm. And it made me think back to this movie, but I watched it twice with sound on. But what would happen if you turn the sound off? Because I think it, like you're saying, it's such a beautifully composed film by uh, Jane Campion. Like she's definitely a master of her craft. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you would lose the score if you turn the sound off, but it'd be interesting just to, if you, you could sort of get what was happening just that way. And yeah. there's, yeah, simplicity and a subtlety to it, which I think makes it that much more powerful. Um, you know, because you're kind of waiting and there's this tension throughout, right? And I got that the first time I watched it, you know, there's this tension, what's going to happen, what's going to happen. And I guess the first time I was a little disappointed because it's all this tension, <laughs> built up tension. And then really, you know, there's no not a lot of explosions, you know, during it. There's not a lot of explosions of emotion or anything. Right. Um so it's very subtle, but then the second time I watched it, I really appreciated that. And you can see all the references early on that lead you to the the twist at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you could you could do a drinking shot um, where you could take a shot every time he mentions Bronco Henry. Um, <laughs> yeah, Phil Burbank. <laughs> if you watch again, um, every time he mentions Bronco Henry, if you took a shot, you'd be drunk by like fifteen minutes into the movie. Yeah, and. Yeah, I, I I thought that that was really interesting. And you mentioned the um, score by Johnny Greenwood. Mm-hmm. And it made me think, too, Johnny Greenwood did the score on There Will Be Blood. Yes. And I think this movie was inspired definitely by There Will Be Blood. You think of like Benedict Cumberbatch, right? Like British in the mm-hmm. lead role. Yeah. You know, this, this grumpy, no good cowboy. And then yeah. you think back to Daniel Day-Lewis and There Will Be Blood. And I think definitely it was there was some inspiration there as well. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because I picked up on that too. And and yeah, because they have Johnny Greenwood in common. But I mean, Daniel Plainview was also just like a reprehensible person. This like visage, like it, he wasn't a cattle rancher. He was an oil um an oil prospector, uh, but it's kind of the same cowboy aesthetic, this kind of like lone wolf uh, ear to the land kind of, um, you know, rough rider idea that, um, that Benedict Cumberbatch is trying to get at too with uh, playing Phil here. Um, At the same time, they're both men who downplay their success. Like, with the sound off as you were talking about, you miss the you would miss the line about how Phil is actually like uh, an accomplished Yale scholar, and there's yeah. there's a scene later on where he's like doing a toast to him and his brother and and the other cowhands, and he's talking about him and his brother, and he, he compares them to Romulus and Remus, and how Bronco Henry was the wolf that suckled them, and it's like, yeah, that doesn't quite jive with the guy who comes storming in. Uh, ba- like caked in mud because he goes down to the river and smothers mud on him and then comes and talks about the piani um, <laughs> where he's he's put <laughs> he's he's putting on this facade of being this uneducated like man of the land but he's like this deeply educated um, east coast scholar and um, 
you know, you talk about the Cody Smith McPhee character and how he's kind of coded as maybe queer or questioning. I, I wonder, I mean, there's nothing really explicit about that other than the fact that he comes across the dirty cowboy magazines that, uh, that Phil inherited from Bronco Henry. I just wonder if it's like a generation clash because it's set in 1925, but you have all these guys pretending like it's like 1885 and you know, it's people are driving in cars. There's a modern city in, in, you know, in Montana. I can't remember when Montana came, became a state, but I think we're like right up to the line of when Montana formally entered the United States. But I mean, there's, there's very much in the back of your head, the fact that these guys are, essentially playing cowboys they're they're acting like it's 50 years earlier but it's essentially a more modern time and um maybe cody smith mcphee's peter is kind of more in touch with that i mean he he does crap (laughs) there's this really great scene where he they visit the they visit the camp or the ranchers are are holed up as they're moving the the cows and, and he gets off the the cart and he's just walking through the camp and you can hear like his jeans whistle because they're brand new jeans. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's so uncomfortable because like the cowboys are laughing at him, but it's also, yeah. she, she just, she just puts the focus as he's walking through the camp <laughs> as these jeans, these brand new spanking jeans <laughs> whistle as he's walking. Yeah. It's, it's something it's, you know, it, it's a clash of of generations. Um, in you know, it's and he wears tennis shoes, and he wears tennis they, shoes. They make a hand. point of showing his shoes a lot because he yeah. switches to boots to sort of appease Phil, right? Yeah, when him and, and Phil sort of become friend more friendly, he he sort of starts to take on that affect. Yeah, yeah, but he's got these white tennis shoes. Um, yeah, and and to. You were talking about Phil as like a horror movie monster. I, I picked up on that as well. And a lot of the scenes with the Kirsten Dunst character, um, who's who's kind of like the, the chief recipient of a lot of his torment. There's a couple of scenes where she kind of like senses him. Like mm-hmm. he has <laughs> he, he like broadcasts this like psychic torment where he just like walks through a room. And she doesn't notice at first, but then she starts looking around and she sees that the door's been opened and she hears the floorboards creak upstairs. Um, And then there's a scene later on where she's sneaking a drink in the alley outside and she doesn't see him watching her through the window, but she can sense it. It's, it's just, there is a, there's a definite kind of like horror movie slasher villain quality to Phil, even though he, he doesn't really do anything terribly violent. And that's another thing in this movie. It's all, it's kind of like all psychological torment. Yeah. Like there's, I don't know if Benedict Cumberbatch is a tall man in the IRL, but it's not that he's like a physically imposing figure. It's just that he broadcasts this like psychic bad juju that yeah. affects everyone. And then even his own brother, because there's this, and it, it's not really drawn. Um, in the text, but I think, you know, I, I know that at some point somebody says how he, uh, the Jesse Plemons character had dropped out of college, but at the same time, he's kind of the one running the business side mm-hmm. of, of their ranching empire. So clearly they are successful. Clearly he's very good at like the managing of the money and the business side of things, but you'd think they would be equals. 
and there's this scene where the governor and his wife are coming in and their parents are coming for this like kind of formal stately dinner kind of thing and he goes to phil in the barn and he's like you know phil uh i think um you know the our guests would appreciate it if you know uh you took a bath before coming to dinner um and it's like it's not how two brothers would talk to each other right (laughs) it's it's he's very very submissive and it's just you know it's this like modest idea of like hey phil wash yourself before coming to our fancy dinner with the freaking governor of (laughs) the territory yeah but it's it, it tells you everything about what the dynamics are in this relationship. They are not equals, even though they are both like have a stake in this like cattle ranching empire. And, um, and you know, the Jesse Plemons character does all like the actual business side while Phil gets to go out and, and be a cowboy. Yeah. And another thing with this movie too, you're talking about the horror and, and maybe like Benedict Cumberbatch is like your archetypical horror um, villain. And, he's doing it um, like you're saying, it's not through violence necessarily. It's more through the way he's teasing people, goading them and Mm. stuff like that. And that's sort of how he's doing it. But I thought it's interesting to look at this movie and the way Jane Campion sort of structures it and the way the characters behave as an audience member, looking at who we're really cheering for in this film and who's doing the most, the worst things in this film, like from, Mm. you could look at it from a moral perspective. You could look at it like a legal perspective, but Mm -hmm. we're cheering. Like if you really think about who we're cheering for and who we're cheering against, and then what their actions actually are in the film kind of makes you think, okay, we're, you know, we're cheering for characters who do worse things in a way Mm. (laughs) when you think about it. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, and it's really interesting film in that the Phil Burbank character by Benedict Cumberbatch um, early on. Yes. He's for sure the villain, mm-hmm. you know, we're as an audience member, you're like, Oh, can't stand this guy. Can somebody stop him from being this way? He's tormenting and the way he cor- torments, like you're saying during that visit from the governor, yeah, the Kirsten Dunst character, who's really shy to play piano. Mm-hmm. But Jesse Plemons, who plays the brother George, who marries Kirsten Dunst's character Rose, says, "Oh, you should play. You can play well. You played well in the movie Pits. You yeah. can play. You can play well." And then she just freezes and can't play a note. And then um, Phil comes in and he's whistling the tune that he heard her practicing that she can't play. Yeah. And throughout, just to torment her, he's whistling that tune. And so you're so against this guy, but then later on, you start to, he starts to reveal, you know, more about his character. I think you start to sympathize with him more. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting just the way that shift from like, this guy's the worst, worst villain in the world to sympathizing with him. And then when, and then you're you're sympathizing with these other characters, other character, and then you realize, wow, they're doing worse things. (laughs) You know, they're, uh, they're actually maybe the the true villain of the piece. And it's, Mm. it's, uh, yeah, I just think it's, I think Jane Campion might be playing around a little bit there with, um, you know, audience expectations, which brings me back to like what Hitchcock used to do. And a lot of of those, you know, masters of like psychological horror, like what they do, it's like, who are you 
I'm going to push back a bit because I'm not sure you're ever supposed to empathize with Phil because is his friendship with Peter, does it stem from like maybe he sees something in Peter that he sees in himself and that Bronco Henry saw in him vis-a-vis, you know, that they they are gay or is it that because Peter stumbles upon because the film lays out very early on that he he has this glen in the on the ranch lands where he can just like go and be himself where mm-hmm. he can just like strip down be himself he, he has this like little piece of paradise that, like by the river where he can just swim and and keep to himself like there's even like a tunnel it, it's kind of very like Alice in Wonderland he goes through this like tunnel of underbrush that, he, that has clearly been dug out and he comes out the other side and he's sort of free to be himself. And Peter stumbles onto that. And it makes you wonder if the, the, Jane Campion is saying they're kind of the same or if they're saying like Phil is keeping Peter close because now Peter has a secret about Phil and Phil being so controlling um, is keeping Peter close to keep his secret close. Um is he grooming Peter or, you know, there's kind of like all these multiple levels. I'm not sure we're supposed to come around that to think that Phil is um, kind of like understandably kind of <laughs> a bad yeah. seed. And it kind of comes around to, um, you know, uh, uh, there will be blood because at the end, like uh Daniel Plainview's never redeemed. At the end, his son mm-hmm. comes to him and says, like, hey, here's this really great opportunity. We can be father and son again. And what's Daniel Plainview's reaction? He's in this big house all by himself. He's made himself in Slamley Witch. And of course, that's the famous line. I drink your milkshake. It's like, no, we are not. No, we're, there's not going to be this tender reconciliation between father and son. I am a a-hole. I will be an a-hole till I'm buried out back. Yeah. And um, yeah. You know, you can't redeem me. And I and I and I wonder if there, there's some of that with with Phil as well, because yeah. the thing that's kind of sets off the final scene is, and I don't want to get too close to into spoilers, but the the whole idea is that Phil burns like some of the burns the leftover hides. He won't sell them to the local indigenous people, um, <laughs> which was probably a very prevalent attitude in Montana at the time. But then um as kind of like an F you to Phil Rose sells the indigenous people, the leftover pelts. And he comes back from, you know, being out on the range and finds the pelts gun and he freaks out and you're meant. And part of the scene is that he was making this rope for Peter. And it was this kind of like tender connection between them. Mm-hmm. But how much of that was like Peter reading into that situation and how much of it was like Phil just mad that he couldn't flip the bird to the local indigenous people. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, some of what you're saying there, Adam, it's interesting because I never th- really thought of it that way. I yeah. did feel feel danger still for Peter throughout because sure. it seemed like, yeah, like the uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, Phil, the Phil Burbank character was grooming him, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it's like, where is he? If they go off somewhere, what's he going to do? What What's going to happen here? Um, so I always felt like there's a little bit of danger. But I... Th- I almost, I never thought of it that Peter discovered his stash of, you know, soft core. <laughs> cowboy uh, porn. Cowboy yeah. porn. 
<laughs> that he saw that and that yeah peter spotted that and then um phil was like okay i have to mm. stop him from letting out my secrets i never saw it that way it'd be interesting mm. maybe that was it i was seeing it more at first he was very angry because he's, he's embarrassed right mm. and he runs mm. after him he's naked in the lake there and he runs after him because he's embarrassed mm-hmm. but then i felt like it was an opportunity for the for Phil's character to sort of open up a bit mm. and almost show his humanity. It could be, um, you know, sh- showing his humanity through, you know, he, now he's feeling alive again, and maybe he's feeling shut out as you know, closeted homosexual in 1925 Montana. Maybe he was feeling burdened by that, but now he, he feels like okay, he has a purpose now. He, mm-hmm. he, he sees this awkward kid who's, you know, not going to fit in. And even if it is, even if they are going back in time and acting like it's 1880, that's the environment Peter's mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. He's not going to feel at home there. Um, so he wants to like be a mentor to him. Like Bronco Henry was a mentor to Phil. Mm. And I think he is sort of invested in that. He's still rough hewn and still like, you know, still nasty to the mother, the Kirsten Dunst character. Um, and you know that's probably like the misogyny that's part of his mm. his personality mm-hmm. but he's trying to open i think he i think he is trying to open up there and that's what makes you know the ending that much more sort of intense in a way um, yeah it's like you know even though he's showing humanity you know he, he's not forgiven for what he's done throughout the movie you know and, yeah and how he's treated the mother you know yeah because I mean, yeah. that's kind of very much what it's about. His his mistreatments of Rose, his, his sort of general demeanor, is kind of what does him in. At the exact moment, he kind of finds a way to open himself up. And I mean, and that could be it too. I mean, there are no easy answers in this movie. You kind of have to just kind of watch it happen and and sort of start making assumptions, which I know <laughs> modern movie audiences don't like very much. But. <laughs> But yeah, it, I mean, that could, that could be a reading, too, that he sees an opportunity to sort of let himself uh, be less guarded a little. And of course, I mean, it's coming at a tremendous time of kind of personal upheaval in this household because you get the impression that um, Phil and George have kind of been on their own uh, running their their little ranching empire the whole time. And then, you know, what does George do? Well, he goes out and... <laughs> you know marries rose and brings her home and uh automatically not you know it's not like they're it's all men because the housekeepers are are women too but i mean they're subservient uh and george brings home a wife who is uh i mean the times is kind of meant to be subservient too but also bringing like a a female influence into their lives more female influence than the housekeepers obviously would have uh and perhaps that contributes to george's wickedness is that you know the power dynamic has been upset he he used to be the one who would boss it you know there's several scenes where he calls his brother fatso just like out in the open amongst the employees it's, yeah and he says it so like casually like it's like what they've been doing for for years you know his brother's you know not so much uh again not an equal he's uh he's secondary to to phil's um slings and arrows so yeah there's a there's an upset in the power dynamic that phil tries to reestablish by coming down hard on rose 
and you know you do kind of wonder if maybe he tries to i mean whether it's malicious reestablish his power dynamic by getting close to the sun or whether it is uh, a humanity thing where he's just kind of you know there's one person on the ranch who maybe he can get close to and maybe he decides that peter i don't know there's it's 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 not it's laid out explicitly it could be either way yeah and it could come down to loneliness and and jealousy really because Mm -hmm. the george burbank character um by jesse plemons he uh when he meets rose it's like shortly after they're married you know Mm -hmm. it happened so quickly yeah and then you know that's you know phil's one friend even though he treats him like crap you know Mm -hmm. it's his brother seems to be his true confidant and his friend and he can't he doesn't have that anymore Mm -hmm. and so rose is sort of coming between that for him and i think there's probably like there's the jealousy there yeah um that's really coming out and you know there's a scene where phil's just in bed and the newlyweds are, <laughs> yeah are having sex in the other room and yeah. he can hear it and you can just see you know he's sort of seething it, with anger and jealousy right yeah he's he's being agonized he's like laying on his bed in the in the room that he and his brother used to share um and he's just like you know plucking away at his banjo and he hears them making love and it's like agony and i mean it probably even more than if you know you're in the next room as your brother and his wife are are making love it's there's there's more to it than just like the uncomfortableness of the situation. It's like something here has fundamentally changed and he just doesn't care for it. And it's in complete indifference to George who, and like this is Kirsten Dunst and Jesse Plemons are married in real life. So this sort of contributes to the, 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 the loving, the lovingness and the intimacy that they project. Yeah, there's a nice sweet, I was just, sorry to interrupt, there's a nice sweet chemistry there. I didn't know they yeah. were married in real life. And I, I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. It's, you know, they're, they go out for a picnic and they're dancing on like this, this ridge. And um, as they're dancing, George just kind of like stops and looks at her and he's, he's just like, it's so nice not to be lonely. And it's just this, yeah. it's this beautiful, heartbreaking moment that just makes you realize <laughs> how, how lonely, you know, while, Phil is outside playing cowboy with all the ranch hands. You know, Phil's probably sitting alone somewhere with a abacus adding up all the, the ones and zeros. And, you know, it's, he's really been frosted out in all this. So, I mean, it, it is really about how he's just by finding love, establishing some reestablishing some dominance for himself, which Phil just absolutely cannot stand. And I mean, and that's the, the dynamic that drives the film. Yeah, and like you mentioned before, excellent performances. Um, yeah, yeah, Benedict Cumberbatch. You, yeah, you can s- just the seething underneath throughout, just the nastiness. Um, but it makes sense with his character, right? Mm-hmm. It's not. It's really true to the character, and I really like the Cody Smith McPhee character as Peter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the sort of awkward character and then Kirsten Dunst and I liked her performance even better the second time I watched it um it's really 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 good performance and just the embarrassment and being somebody because there's a whole class thing like you've mentioned going on here too she's from like a different class and there she's made to feel lesser you know during the governor's visits they don't even really want to talk to her 
you know, like, oh, yeah, go ahead, play the piano, whatever, you know. Yeah, she's kind of barely there. And there's like one scene where she brings in a tray of drinks and, and George gets called away for a minute. And it's, you know, she she's still there <laughs> holding the drinks and it's just, you know, how out of place she is. It's, I, I will say it does feel weird. Um, this is such a male centric movie, and that's typically not where Jane Campion goes. Um, so it, it does feel like we don't get a lot of Kirsten Dunst in it because it, I think in another Jane Campion movie, she would kind of be the star, but it's, I, I think you get some really interesting insights because this is a female director looking at like, you know, trends of maleness in, in the past. And it, it's, it's incredibly insightful. And again, none of this is spoon fed either. A lot of this is just sort of like you sitting there thinking about this movie and because it's so relaxed like the, the filmmaking is so relaxed and it just lets you indulge in every scene you you all all you can do is sit there and think about what you're watching it's it's really incredible filmmaking for sure yeah and just you know the toxic masculinity right that's mm-hmm. the term pro- and uh she's really showcasing that with uh phil burbank character but she's getting deeper into like what's driving that yeah. which is which is interesting interesting as well you know and you know gender roles in 1925 montana mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. yeah and she does hint uh, the peter character i know it never comes across he never says outright i'm gay but there is that one scene where they're in the shoe store where mm-hmm. he's getting his white tennis shoes with his mother rose <laughs> and uh he mentions that there's uh, he has a friend at college right mm-hmm. but he wouldn't be comfortable bringing his friend to the yeah. ranch but they yeah. might you might not it might not be a sexual relationship but well a friend at college has kind of been a code for generations too so it, it's yeah. there's a lot to unpack with this movie and uh i think the the less you kind of go in i mean we, we've just talked about it for 35 minutes so the less you go and spoil the better but i mean it's it's well worth checking out because um the performances are so strong and the filmmaking is so strong Mm-hmm. So, Tim, if, uh, you know, people want to talk about ranching in 1925, uh, you're clearly an expert. How can people get in touch with you? <laughs> yeah, please. I'd say if anybody wants to reach me, uh, reach out, Flash in the Deadpan on social media. Um, yeah, reach out and let me know what you think about all things Western. So that's it for this week's show. We hope you liked it. And if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on our website at endcreditsradioshow.com. Download it from the Guelph Politicast channel every Friday at Podbean or through your favorite podcast app at Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. And when you're on Spotify, you can find the playlist for much of the music that you hear on the End Credit Show. Just open up Spotify and search for End Credits on CFRU. You can find us on social media on Facebook at End Credits Radio Show and on Twitter at End Credits Radio. I will be back here on CFRU Thursday at 5 p.m. for news and politics with Open Sources Guelph. And that is co hosted by my partner there, Scotty Hertz. In the meantime, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Adam A. Donaldson, and you can check out my news and politics site at guelphpolitico.ca. Stay tuned for more great programming here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. We will return next Wednesday at 3 p.m. for more end credits, and we will see you then.